beginning with a, a story that uh, one of my friends on the board uh, gave me last year that I really like. Uh, one day there was a blind man sitting on the steps of a building with a hat on with a hat by his feet and a sign that read, I am blind, please help. A creative publicist was walking by and, observe, and stopped to observe. He saw that the blind man had only a few coins in his hat. He dropped in more coins and without asking for permission took the sign and rewrote it. He returned the sign to the blind man and left. At the end of the day, the publicist returned to the blind man and noticed that his hat was full of bills and coins. The blind man recognized his footsteps and asked if it was he who had rewritten the sign and he wanted to know what he had written on it. The publicist responded, I didn't write anything that wasn't true. I just wrote the message a little differently and he smiled and went on his way. The new sign read this. It said, Today is spring and I cannot see it. And so I was reflecting a bit on how come that resonates for me, what is so touching. And there's a sense of um, that we're, bl- we're all blinded by our thoughts. We all get lost and distracted by our thoughts and we miss out. We just miss out on an awful lot of living. And because we all have a, or most of us have something that really um, just relishes the changing of the seasons, the waking up of of life, a kind of life loving itself in spring, there's something very poignant about, you know, what if we steamrolled through spring preoccupied? And, uh, and it's not that different from the plight of that blind man, that, there's so, that in our lives um, we really don't want to skim the surface, we want to arrive and yet there can be this sense of being on this merry-go-round or on, at, in this kind of speed and preoccupation where we don't really fully just get here. There's usually a sense that here is kind of on its way to something else or not as important about what's around the corner or what's already happened. So how to get here. And last week the talk was on what I call embodied spirit, which is really to say, and this is very intrinsic to the Buddhist teachings, that the first foundation of mindfulness, the, the portal to presence that's most direct and necessary, and everything else arises from it, is being really awake in our senses, in these bodies. And, and I'll invite you this week, as I did last week, to keep checking, because we leave so quickly. As soon as we think, oh, okay, time to listen to a Dharma talk, it's like we're gone. We're not still feeling this life right here. Do you know what I mean? How quick it happens? So the inquiry is really, what does it mean to come home right in this moment to this body, to this life? And we'll ask, I'll ask that as many times as I remember. But the, the deep re- recognition is that to understand life, I mean, to have any real wisdom and to love life, really love life and to discover peace in the midst, we need to be able to be awake in our senses. We can't be off there about thoughts. Truth does not get revealed through our thoughts. It gets revealed in a direct encounter with presence. So the challenge is, as we can intuit, that in this embodied experience there's pleasantness and there's unpleasantness. 
And it's a dance of elements. And we've got the intensity of fire and heat and wind, you know, just all of it's moving through us and pressure and flowing and hardness and space and light and dark. It's all living through these bodies. And sometimes it's pleasant and sometimes it's unpleasant. And we're rigged to constantly react to how it is. So much of the time, we're trying to get more comfortable. We're trying to deal with that it's, it's intense, or it's unfamiliar, or it's really, really painful, or really pleasant. And each of those makes us want to do something or control things. So if we pause, we'll notice that we're in some way trying to control our experience. In some way. So it's, ex- it's especially true when there's strong emotional wounding. When there's a very strong emotion, um, we try to get away from it and we take refuge in our thoughts. It's just we don't want to feel the raw intensity of fear, our grief, our jealousy, our shame. So we very quickly start spinning in our thoughts. Now this leaving the body is... I think particularly exaggerated in a culture like ours. And I talked about this last week, and I'll just say a little bit, that we, in this culture, especially cultures that are very separated from the earth, that are very industrialized and speedy and not linked to the neighborhood and the earth that's here and the particularities of what trees and birds and smells and sounds and movement of the seasons are right here, um, we get disconnected from our body. And then there's a fear of the body and there's a sense of trying to over-medicate and control it and there's a fear of the earth trying to control the earth and then abuse the earth. We don't really listen to the needs of the earth. And then even with our children, and we know it, there's, it's, it's very, to me, scary how what technology does for our children to disconnect them from an understanding of the earth and the seasons and their own bodies and so on. Somebody sent me this. Uh, one young, young boy went with his dad to see a litter of kittens and on returning home he breathlessly informed his mother that there were two boy kittens and two girl kittens. How'd you know, his mother asked. Well, daddy picked them up and looked underneath, he replied. I think it's printed on the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> So religion often supports the mind-body split, as most of us know. There's a hierarchy that usually poses the body as sinful and trouble and lower and that you're trying to transcend the body to get somewhere and uh, to get freedom. And it's true in, in parts of Buddhism, too, that you have this kind of, it, this kind of bias against the body, a wariness of kind of the seduction of the senses. And... Um, one story I've loved for uh, that this happened in the 70s, and up at the Insight Meditation Society, uh, where I first started meditating, they had one of the Burmese teachers come to the three-month retreat that was there, and during the retreat there would be times for questions. So, one of the questions that one of the students asked this teacher was, "What do you think of sex?" And his response was, "It's." base, it's gross, and it's disgusting. Okay? That was his response. So at the end of the three-month retreat, one of their traditions was to do these dharma skits, you know, skits about the teachings. And in one of the skits, they had somebody playing this Burmese teacher, and then they had a student asking that same question. <laughs> so the student poses the question to this 
person playing the teacher, and the teacher responds with great enthusiasm. Sex is basic, engrossing, and worth discussing. (laughs) (laughs) So this is East meets West kind of in Buddhism. Ruth Gregory says, you know, he talks about how Buddhists talk about it's all a dream, but he says, no matter how convinced a Buddhist is that the world is an illusion, she invariably leaves a room by walking through a doorway rather than through a wall. So so the, it's not that there isn't something profoundly dreamlike about this world, but it's also that we're made of this, the elements. We are made of the elements, this aliveness. And to pull away from that and some notion of, well, it's all empty in a dream, means that we're in a way pulling away from the very vitality that's the source of our being. There's a pulling away from life. So I think the most basic kind of um, inquiry in a, uh, in a talk like this is, you know, that we leave and how do we learn to stay? It's, it's just very deep conditioning to split off and to leave. And so, like, even in this moment, what does it mean again? If you could just close your eyes and say, well, what does being embodied mean? Like, what is it like to come home even in this moment? Perhaps it helps you to soften your hands and just feel the sensations in your hands. Maybe just inviting yourself to see if it's possible to relax a little more through your body. Helps you to be aware in your body. What we find is that we leave and we're mostly very, very lost in our thoughts and ideas about what's going on. There's a story of Mullah Nasruddin, a, a Sufi wise man and fool of both, you know, who's the mix. And he was invited to teach at this very large temple and the congregation was very, very excited to have him come. So he comes in and he says, who knows what I'm going to say? And there's no hands that go up. So he just walks out. <laughs> And they're really kind of freaked out. They're confused. They're upset. So they invite him back. And he comes in. He sits there and goes, who knows what I'm going to say? And everybody's hand sh- shoots up. He walks out. <laughs> so again, they're, they're mixed up. So he comes back again. They invite him again. He goes, who knows what I'm going to say? And half the group raises their hand. Half the group doesn't. So he says, good. You teach you. <laughs> you know, and he leaves again. And... I like that story. I'm not sure exactly why, but I think it was really... (laughs) But I think part of it is that part of the time we move through the world with some certainty, as if we really know what we believe and we know what's right and we're politically right. I mean, how many people think their political ideas are wrong? (laughs) You know, it's like we think we're right all the time. And, you know, our judgments about other people or our own worth or our own lack of worth, but we're sure we're right. And then at other times there's this kind of, and it's almost chronic in times, the sense that we don't know enough, that there's something we have to figure out, some other piece of information, something. And there's a sense there's an answer out there, and we're always trying to land on it. And some of you will know, because this is one of my favorite examples of this, is um, how the Japanese eat very little fat and suffer fewer heart attacks than the British or Americans. And, you know, our whole inquiry over what's the right way to eat. And the French eat a lot of fat, and they also suffer fewer heart attacks than the British or Americans. Now, the Japanese drink very little red wine, and they suffer fewer heart attacks than the British or the Yanks. 
The Italians drink huge amounts of red wine, and they also suffer fewer heart attacks than the above. Now, the Germans drink a lot of beer, and they suffer fewer heart attacks. It goes on and on and on, but the moral of the story is eat and drink what you like. It's speaking English that kills you. you know? <laughs> so trying to make sense of this world, and it happens in spiritual life too. It's like rather than meditating and just being with the actual reality of what's right here. In other words, if we have an inquiry as to what's true, rather than that, we try to think our way to the answers. We do that. We try to conceptualize. And so the, one of the classic Zen stories is of a, a Zen student saying to this Roshi, you know, Roshi, Roshi, what happens after we die? And the Roshi responds, I don't know. And it gets him really, really upset. And he goes, I thought you were a Zen monk. And he said, I am, but not a dead one, you know? <laughs> and it's a great answer because we can't think our way to freedom. We can't think our way to wisdom. We can't think our way to love. We can't think our way to creativity or to peace. There's only one portal and that is an absolute presence with what's here. It's the only way. And yet we are rigged to do everything but. Okay? So the basic unfolding in spiritual practice is a movement from conceptual thought, and this is not to say that conceptualizing and thinking aren't absolutely essential to surviving. And I try to say that as often as possible, because usually somebody raises their hand and says, but don't I have to think to work? I mean, am I supposed to be mindful and get out of my thoughts all the time? And no. There are absolutely, it's just essential and part of the incredible uniqueness and creativity of who we are is thinking. But to use it as a tool and to know that a huge portion of our thoughts aren't so useful. We know that. A huge portion. A huge portion just reconfirm something's wrong with me or something's wrong with you or something's wrong with life and I should be uptight about it. And that's the basic message of a huge portion of our thoughts. Isn't it true? So there's a training in mindfulness where we begin to realize, oh, thinking, thinking, just to know it so that we're not, so we have an option. And either, oh, yes, that thought, this thought is really good planning or good strategizing, or we go, oh, this is one of those habitual channels that I tap into that in some way makes me small or wrong or makes you the enemy or in some way creates the fight, flight, excess of cortisol, etc. in my body. So the movement is to step out of the fear thinking. And uh, the poet Rumi put it this way. He said, Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Move outside the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down in always widening rings of being. Move outside the tangle of fear thinking. And I would say if there's any kind of description of what's right at the core of the training of meditation, it's that. That we just catch on to, okay, this is thinking, it's just thinking. And if it's going to create more of a sense of you and I are divided, if it's, gonna sen- if it's reconfirming a sense of something's wrong here, move outside. 
come home to something, a wider ring of being, of presence. So the first part of our training, and this is really across many traditions, is to intentionally bring our awareness right here into the body. And I'm going to invite you to do it again. To just let yourself feel your body from the inside out. Not an idea of the body, but this mysterious, living, vibrating happening that's right here. This invitation is offered by Hamid Ali, one of my favorite teachers, in these words. He says, Sincerely explore for yourself, are you here or not? Are you in your body or oblivious or only aware of parts of it? When I say, are you in your body, I mean, are you completely filling your body? Take a moment with that. Are you completely filling your body? I want to know whether you are in your feet or just have feet. Do you live in them or are they just things you use when you walk? Are you in your belly or do you just know vaguely that you have a belly? Or is it just for food? Are you really in your hands? Check that out. Or do you move them from a distance? Okay, now, are you present in your cells, inhabiting and filling your body? If you aren't in your body, what significance is there in your experience this moment? Are you preparing so that you can be here and live in the future? Are you setting up conditions by saying to yourself, well, when such and such happens, I'll have time, I'll be here. If you're not here, what are you saving yourself for? So we begin our meditation practice in some way by intentionally and gently coming back home right here. And if you want to open your eyes, you can. So one of uh, the women I work with, actually work with by the phone, has struggled a lot with chronic fatigue in her life. And she had to stop all activity because she had hit kind of that wall where she was not really, really that unable to function. And so everything stopped in her life, but then she realized on some level she still wasn't resting enough. Like she had stopped doing everything, but she still wasn't there. And she realized that even when she wasn't doing activity, she was so in the habit of doing, her nervous system was still doing. So even when she wasn't like officially doing an activity, she was in some way holding or controlling or busy. Um, So her koan became, what does it mean to rest fully in this moment? So hence, it's not just that we scan and we feel our hands or our heart or our belly, but there's a um, kind of an invitation to decontract. It's almost like the contracting is a doing. And if we can begin to be aware, and I'm inviting you again to scan your body and sense... Where is there kind of a habitual tightening? When we're very, very young, we're very relaxed and fluid, flowing, 
But then as we start defending against life, our body becomes a kind of armoring. We tense and it becomes so habitual we don't notice the tightness. It's so, it's so familiar. So part of this mindfulness is to begin to sense the body's armor and just have that invitation. Is it possible just to let go a little more? The image of a smile actually guides the body in relaxing. It creates a space of presence that actually lets, allows for a letting go. Now one of the areas that is most subtle and yet most distinct in a different way is the belly. That it's the most existentially tight place. We have a kind of clutch there that we don't even notice sometimes. And yet as you start being more mindful of your body, you can right now just sense the belly and sense an intention to soften, to loosen, to let the breath deep into the torso. And you might notice that there can even be some fear because that tightness is trying to hold against the fear, trying to push it away. So part of coming into the body is opening to the fear that we've been pushing away. Okay, so we'll keep going because this brings up the next question. Those of us that most have exited from our bodies have exited because it felt like too much to handle. And often when there's trauma and it's from the culture and from our families, the most intelligent and only way we have to get away from what feels intolerable and too much is to leave our body. So it's not like we're being bad, it's like that is the mechanism by which we survive, we make it, is to leave our bodies. So the more trauma, the more we've left our bodies. So the question is, how do we come back given that we've left something that feels really intense and too difficult? Now this is um, Alice Miller, who's a wonderful author and psychotherapist. And she says basically there's no way to avoid what's in the body. She says we either pay attention to it or we suffer the consequences. So I'm going to read you what she wrote. She says, The truth about our childhood is stored up in our body. And although we can repress it, we can never alter it. Our intellect can be deceived, our feelings manipulated, and conceptions confused, and our body tricked with medication. But someday our body will present its bill. For it is as incorruptible as a child who still whole in spirit will accept no compromises or excuses and it will not stop tormenting us until we stop evading the truth. So what this means is that the only way to really heal, to allow what's clogged and blocked and pushed away to be free and to move and to flow and to come back to wholeness is by feeling what's in the body. There's no way around it. And if we've been traumatized, we can't just say, okay, I'm going to feel what's in the body because it could feel like too much. And what this points out is that we need some skillful means or strategies of coming back into the body. It's not so simple as me sitting here and saying, okay, 
bring your attention to the body, now just scan in the body, now open to it, now fill the body with awareness. Because if there's a lot of trauma there, you're not going to be able to. Or if you do try to, it could re-traumatize you. And I want to say that because I feel like there's some unfairness sometimes in the way meditation instructions are given. Assuming that you can or you should be able to open to what it's intelligent to be much more gradual with. Is this making sense? I kind of want to find a way to check in here. So the situation is this, that um, when our limbic system perceives danger, it reacts ten times as fast as whatever is going on in the higher brain. In other words, before we've had a time to in any way compute what we should be doing, the limbic system has us run, flee, grab, move, whatever, when we perceive danger. So it's not our fault, it just happens. And the more we've had trauma or difficulty in our life, in other words, the more we perceive danger, the more what's happening is that our limbic system is having us race away into thoughts and into activity and leave our body before we even know it. It just happens. And you can see it in traumatized societies too. The, the whole movement towards greed or violence is just like so quick and so immediate and so reactive. There's not much of the you know, frontal lobes that are saying, wait a minute, if we do this, then they're just going to react back and we're going to be forever in that cycle of violence. That kind of thinking doesn't go on. It's just limbic systems reacting. So there's a catch-22 that in order to pause and really heal, we need to feel what's here. We need to come back to presence and it can feel intolerable or too much. And so I'd like to give you some examples of some meditative strategies that help to create a more conducive environment for full embodied presence. Maybe to give you an example of someone I worked with, this was uh, last summer, I, at each summer I do a weekend up at Omega in New York. Um, I think it's called Radical Acceptance, but it's really how to work with intense fear and shame and challenging emotions. And one of the men that attended it had um, just been laid off from work. And it was like kind of right at the beginning of the wave of what was going on and more and more people have been laid off since. A lot of shame, a lot of failure, and kind of what I call situational panic. I mean, he wasn't a person that was always had you know chronic anxiety attacks, but he was now in... It was very easy for his whole system to go into panic. And for me to just say, just open to how that panic feels, would have been even intensified the trauma. Because okay? the way that healing works, the way that mindfulness works is that you retouch a difficult experience but with added resources. This is, this is the whole alchemy of all learning and healing, is that you touch the same thing but with added sense of love or presence or wisdom or whatever. Often if you just retouch it with somebody else present, that's enough of an added resource so that you don't just run the same traumatic kind of um, neuropathways. So for him, he was his. What would happen is he'd have start having thoughts about I'm not going to get a job again or what's going to happen, and his heart would start racing, and he felt like he was falling into this empty pit. And um, then the obsessing would get even worse. You know how others were looking at him and um, how much of a failure he was. So the flag of of this kind of traumatic experience was these spinning thoughts. 
And um, so we began to do some very gentle, what I call skillful means, some meditative practices just to help him to begin to arrive in his body. And each one of these, by the way, has... And it's one of the very cool things about being around now and learning to meditate is that so many of these strategies are being validated by science as having an effect on the nervous system that's really helpful. And the first one, as many of you might know, is just begin a long, slow, deep breath. And it doesn't work for everyone. If If your trauma was that you were um, almost drowned or something, then for somebody to say long, deep breath, that might not do it. I mean, that could... <laughs> there's like different, different ways for different people, but for many people, deep belly breathing activates the parasympathetic nervous system and it slows down the sympathetic, which is the arousal side. And um, so y- what happens is that as the parasympathetic is aroused and there's that calming down, you regain access to more of your whole body and your whole brain. So start, we started with long, deep breathing. And the other thing I had him do was put his hand on his heart. Now, when I first started meditating years ago and I'd put my hand on my own heart to kind of reconnect with a sense of heart and then I started teaching the Buddhist heart meditations and I said, do these meditations, but put your hand on your heart while you're doing it. I didn't know the science at all. But more recently, there's been a lot of research that have shown that the neural cells around the heart are activated during stress and a warmth of the hand on the heart actually calms those neurons down. And then it's especially effective and they're now able... They have such sophisticated scanning technology of the brain they can show different parts of the brain lighting up that if you go like this and you have some thought about somebody that you love or that loves you, it absolutely shifts your biochemistry around. It's kind of amazing. So what he would do is he would do long, slow breathing. Um, I like to kind of... I like For some reason I put two hands, but... um, and he'd imagine his wife smiling at him because he trusted that she still loved and respected him. So he'd see that in her eyes. And the other thing he did was he went outside a lot. Omega has a very lovely campus. So, you know, at the breaks and so on, he'd walk outside. And, and again, there's been a lot of research that have shown that being in the elements and in nature... Um, is really healing. It brings internal balance. There's research on taking care of plants that actually, you know, is, is healing in this way. So he, one of the, one afternoon, we, we did a, a kind of process inside that stirred him up on forgiveness and self-forgiveness because that's part of those weekends. He went outside, he sat down under a tree, he sat like this, he breathed slow and deep and he felt the earth. And that's when he could start to stay, the staying I was speaking of. It's almost like those different skillful means allowed enough of the kind of biochemical rebalancing so he could then begin to stay with and feel the anxiety in his body and feel the agitation in a very physical way and allow it. And he could just say yes and yes and yes and feel it until in that staying he re-arrived in a kind of spaciousness because this is the gift of staying. When you stay with the physical aliveness, you arrive in the presence. And the presence is really home. And he told me that when he stayed, he could tell it wasn't so personal. This anxiety, it wasn't my fear, it's just the fear. And it's not 
just me losing a job, it's just the loss. It's the loss that everyone and the fear that we all feel at different times. And his big takeaway was that he could trust himself in a new way. He said, I came to trust myself more than if I had had it, if my, I still had my job, because I could stay and come into a presence that could take care of my life. Deep, deep trust when we don't leave. Just read you. This is uh, Jane Hooper writes, Please come home. And you might just again let this be a, a moment where you notice how much you haven't been in your body without any judgment at all. Without any judgment at all. Please come home. Please come home into your body, your own vessel, your own earth. Please come home into each and every cell and fully into the space that surrounds you. Please come home. Please come home into your body, your own vessel, your own earth. Please come home into each and every cell and fully into the space that surrounds you. Please come home. Please come home to trusting yourself and your instincts and your ways and your knowings. Please come home. Please come home to trusting yourself. In the moments that we're leaving, we can't trust who we are. It's like there's something inside we have to get away from. There's nothing we can rely on. So we do this practice and sometimes we do these what we call skillful means where we breathe long and deep and sometimes we walk on the earth and sometimes we ask somebody to keep us company and sometimes we keep ourselves company by putting our own hands on our hearts and these are all ways to remember some sense of belonging some sense of belonging to something larger that lets us relax, that sympathetic system relaxes, we come back into more wholeness. Now what I'd like to say is that as we start getting the knack of it, and it's a daily practice of pausing, it's a daily practice of sensing, okay, just right here. As we start getting the knack of it, there are three different ways I'd like to speak of that we kind of experience the fruit of practice. Um, and I think of them as three ways that we belong more, more fully to, to our existence. And one is that we um, fall in love with life. We can't be in love with life, and by that I mean in love with life, in love with who we are, in love with others, unless we're awake in our bodies. We come home to a vibrance and an aliveness that is... Is a, is a blessing. And then the third belonging is we belong more to truth. We actually can see the nature of reality itself. Start with the aliveness and just say that, especially those that come to retreats really experience this, that as you spend more and more moments where you're here in this aliveness of your body, then the senses are really much more clear and awake and you move around and the colors are brighter there's a sense of the touch and sense and taste and sound and just this aliveness that happens. There's a sense of really belonging. There's a friend of mine who just sent me this, described how, you know, we spend so much time trying to figure things out, describe this gift of aliveness in this way, this gift of really belonging to life. 
He says, and then it hit me. Everything I wanted, the answers to every question I had, was to be found not by using the mind to describe to construct concepts and worlds and theories to figure things out. The true power place, true mastery comes from following the unfathomable rhythms and sensations in the body. Then he gives an image. He says, imagine a big dark snake moving beneath wet leaves in the woods and you recoil from it, yet you're commanded to stay, you know, stay, stay, stay with that snake to hold it. You discover instead that it's a huge dark root pulsing with energy, with dirt and bugs crawling around it. You still recoil, but you stay. You stay, and you're somehow drawn into it. And then you discover that what you initially thought was a beast is a mighty root connected with an unfathomable network of roots in the forest, and through it you feel its embrace and are presented with its secrets and its wonders. We stay. So we stay right here, and we feel the currents of energy here, and it connects us with the energetic field of this universe. It connects us with all of life. The church says the body is a sin. Science says the body is a machine. Advertising says the body is a business. The body says, I am a fiesta. (laughs) I didn't make that up. That's uh, Eduardo Galeano. So mindfulness of sensation. What happens when we wake up out of thoughts and into the body is it's very mysterious. As soon as we're not thinking and we're just living in this vibratory world, it's very mysterious and there is a profound sense of wonder that arises. You can't walk outside and if you're not in thoughts when you walk outside, you can't bear witness to the aliveness of this world without being blown away in some way, without being just touched by the mystery of it all. I wanted to share with you um, a story I read. This was in African Genesis where a biologist, uh, Robert Audrey, had an incident in Kenya. He met with renowned paleontologist Louis Leakey. And Leakey pointed out to him what appeared to be a coral-colored flower made up of many blossoms, like a hyacinth, okay? So imagine this, this hyacinth-looking flower. But on close inspection, each blossom turned out to be the wing of an insect, These, said Leakey, were flatted bugs. So Audrey remarked that this was kind of certainly a striking instance of protective imitation in nature. But Leakey listened and looked amused and explained that the coral flower imitated by the flatted bug does not exist in nature. Furthermore, and listen to this, each batch of eggs laid by the female includes at least one flatted bug with green wings, not coral, and several with wings of in-between shades. Audrey describes the moment. I looked closely. At the top of the insect flower was a single green bud. Behind it were a half dozen partially matured blossoms showing only strains of coral. Behind these on the twig crouched the full strength of the flatted bug society, all with wings of purest coral to complete the colony's creation and deceive the eyes of the hungriest bird. There are moments when one's only response to evolutionary achievement can be a prickling sensation on the scalp but my speechlessness had not reached its most brain-numbed moment. Leaky shook the stick. The startled colony rose from its twig and filled the air with fluttering flattig bugs. Then they returned to their twig. They alighted in no particular order, and for an instant the twig was alive with the little creatures climbing over each other's shoulders in what seemed to be random movement. But the movement was not random. 
Shortly the twig was still and one beheld again the flower. The poet Pablo Neruda reminds us what we know is so little, what we presume is so much. When we rest in mystery, our perspective grows and our identity shifts. We are part of this great mystery, not separate at all. So I feel like this was what my friend was writing when he talked about the root and then realizing we are the root and we belong to this whole web of life. So one of the fruits of being awake in this mystery vibrating world of the body is aliveness and the second is love. That I have many, many people that will talk to me and say in some way a confessional which is, I believe in love, I love loving and there are most moments that I go through life that I'm not feeling it viscerally. It's more of an idea. And it's an interesting inquiry when we talk to each other how much we actually spend in a quality of real authentic tenderness where the heart, when there's suffering, has a real quality of kindness and care that's visceral. And when there's beauty or our sense of the goodness of another that there's like this this uh, real wave, alive, tender, warm sense in the heart. We're usually too busy and too armored to feel that. So part of re-entering the body is to soften and dissolve that armoring so we can really live our love. So it's not an idea. Many moments that we act ethically, that we're helpful, and yet we're coming from I should rather than that vibrance of loving. And we help the heart of our world's body awaken when our care is visceral. So this is really an evolutionary process. The more we come into our body and we're awake with loving, it actually changes the world body around. So rather than speak more about this piece, I'd like just to do a very brief meditation. Just close your eyes again. So as we've been doing all night, invite yourself home. Just to step out of any concepts or ideas into the vividness of what's here. And it might be that there's physical unpleasantness like tiredness or discomfort. And it might be that you sense vibration or heat, pressure, density, flow. including sounds so you're listening to the world and then a listening to your own heart so you can listen to and feel your heart and to create more presence with the heart you might want to sense that slight smile smile at the mouth Just smile at the heart. Just to create the space for whatever's here right now. Breathing into the heart, feeling the heart. And as you listen to and feel your heart, invite someone in your life that you'd like to to sense your metta, your loving kindness for somebody that matters to you. Just invite 
them to arise into your awareness. And still breathing and feeling your heart and sensing this being's presence. Take some moments just to sense the, the goodness of this person. What it is that you care about or love. You might imagine this person expressing their love, their aliveness, their humor. So that as you sense this person's goodness, let yourself sense it very directly, viscerally in the heart. Let your heart receive the experience of their goodness. So you can sense how your heart is holding this person. And if it helps to bring your hand to your heart just to feel that part of your being, that electromagnetic field of aliveness in the chest. And sense that in the space of your heart this being lives. And that you're in the space of this being's heart. And that there's a space that's bigger than any idea that's what we are. that's tender and awake. Keep feeling the sensations of your heart, sensing this person's goodness, and sensing the field of loving. You might imagine that from this direct visceral loving that you're hugging this person or touching them or in some way communicating your love. In some way communicating your love to this person from that visceral place of loving and them getting it. Imagine that. Them getting it. Them receiving and getting your loving. We help the heart of our world's body awaken when our care is visceral. Imagine if we left here and there's just more aliveness of the heart so that when we smiled at someone or gave a kind word or a prayerful thought, that ripples out. That's the love that ripples out. Poet Havis says, Please stay near to me and Havis will spin you into love. Stay near to this body, this heart. Okay, so opening your eyes. So this is the second fruit of embodied spirit. The first fruit is that we feel that aliveness and that wonder and mystery of being vividly alive. And the second is that if we're awake in our bodies, we are, our love is more visceral, more powerful, more pure. 
The third is that it's only by being awake in our bodies that we can realize the nature of reality itself. In other words, wisdom arises from embodied presence. Kabir says, if you want the truth, I will tell you the truth. The God whom I love is inside. So this deep wisdom, embodied wisdom, if we're in our bodies, we directly sense impermanence. It's not an idea. We feel change. We feel flow. We know that nothing's holding still. When we're in our body and awake, we can sense how any time we resist, push away, grasp, there's suffering. It's very direct. It's not an idea. It's almost like, imagine a moving rope and you try to grab it and you get rope burn. You can feel it in your body that when you're trying to control things, it removes you from the flow, it hurts. And in the most deep way, when we're awake in our bodies, when we're not in thoughts, it's through the thoughts and the stories that we keep resurrecting a sense of self. You have to tell the story or have a thought about me and you for that sense of self to really consolidate. It has to be told as a story. So when we start quieting down and entering this mystery of vibratory aliveness, we discover that there's not a self. This story that we've been telling ourselves, there's not a self to be found, but there's this belonging to this whole universe of aliveness. So we realize what the Buddhists describe as anatta, no self, an emptiness, but of total vivid aliveness that's one with this universe. Ever-widening rings of being. We live in that, we inhabit that. So I'd like to invite you into a final meditation just to explore this last piece of embodied presence and then we'll close for the evening. So as before, sense yourself coming home and what that means. What does it mean to be at home in this moment with this breath, with these sensations? Just ask yourself if it's possible to relax and let go just a little bit more into this aliveness. This coming home into what you are. You're more this, this vibrating aliveness than any story you could have in your mind. You're more this presence that's aware. Now notice, listen and feel the experience, this moment-to-moment experience, very close up. Is there anything that's solid, that's not moving? Just listen and feel. Is anything holding still? the wisdom of impermanence sensing this ever-changing flow of phenomena and letting go and letting go into that flow being the flow 
being the flow takes relaxing over and over again because there's a conditioning to contract. So the first wisdom in this aliveness is that it's changing, moving. There's no center, there's no solidity. Can you feel a center to it? Do you sense a boundary? Is there any boundary to the aliveness? without thinking about it, can you sense a self? When we step out of the tangle of thinking and just let go into this changing flow, it's possible to sense that this world's empty of any solid, static self and yet it's full of awareness. Is anything missing in this moment? Is anything missing? The Indian teacher Sri Narsargadatta says, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. May the gifts of these practices carry us home over and over to the aliveness and presence that's our true nature. May we live from this loving presence and may this loving presence bring healing and peace to the world. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.